Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Today's episode is about cultivating creativity, remote viewing, the power of intention, and the anthropology of religions. On today's episode, we'll be featuring our guest, Stephen Schwartz. For 40 years, Stephen Schwartz has been studying the nature of consciousness, particularly that aspect independent of space and time. Schwartz is part of the small group that founded Modern Remote Viewing Research and is the principal researcher studying the use of remote viewing in archaeology, which we'll dive into. Stephen is really the OG in the world of consciousness. He's an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction. He's a columnist for the Medical and Consciousness Research Journal Explore, editor of the daily web publication ShortsReports.net, in which he covers trends that are affecting the future. And I highly recommend that you guys all check that out. He's got a Facebook page. And his other academic and research appointments include the Senior Samueli Fellow for Brain, Mind, and Healing, founder and research director of the Mobius Laboratory, and many, many more. I mean, I could probably spend the next hour just talking about Stephen's accolades. Some of his government appointments include special assistant for research and analysis to the chief of naval operations, consultant to the oceanographer of the Navy, member of the MIT Secretary of Defense Study Group on Innovation, Technology, and the Future. He's also been an editorial staff member of National Geographic, editor of Sea Power, and staff reporter and feature writer for the Daily Press and the Times Herald. <laughs> so, Stefan, for, for those who don't know, can you tell us what remote viewing is? Because it's not really a mainstream term, and so I'd love for you to define that before we dive into remote viewing. Well, a typical description would be, Yasmin, I'm going to show you a picture in an hour. Could you please describe it for me? At the time that I'm asking you the question, the picture doesn't exist. So nobody knows. It's a triple blind experiment. Triple blind meaning literally nobody knows. And uh, you describe whatever it is you say. And then an hour from now, we go to a computer and we ask the computer to select a series of targets, say five targets, and we give them to a judge who is blind to everything that has preceded this. And they look at your answers and they compare your answer to the five targets. And if they pick the correct one, that is the target that's going to be shown to you, then you have a hit. And um, so this has been done so many times now that remote viewing has, is the only parapsychological protocol that has gone from the laboratory to being an avocational interest. It's like uh, scuba diving or or uh, snowboarding or something. There are thousands of people that do it. There are magazines, there are conferences, there are discussion groups. You can do a search and find them on the internet. And the reason that so many people are involved in this is that most people can do it successfully. I used a variation of it in order to locate archaeological sites that were unknown. But it's been used by for all sorts of reasons. At SRI, Hal, Russ, and Ed, they used it uh, to help the American intelligence community get information about things they could not otherwise know. So there was a kind of psychic spying. Wow. Okay. Because the audience is mostly mainstream, um, 
I, w- I want to also just talk about things that maybe some people are not aware of, like what, what the term non-local consciousness means. Um, maybe we could define that before we continue, because I know I really want to uh, get into um, the work that you did with the government, if you're allowed to talk about that and, and tell us. No, I did not get involved with the government. I would not do classified research. Got it. Okay. But you worked for... Um... Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I spent several years um, working for the government, but it has nothing to do with this kind of research. It was about geopolitics and transforming the military from an elitist conscription organization to an all-volunteer meritocracy. Wow. Okay. Yeah, we can dive into that subject at maybe another time. That's also very interesting. Um, Can we talk about uh, the 2050 experiment what did you learn? What were some of the major takeaways? Um, I did listen to uh, some of the findings from another recording, and I just think it was so fascinating. Um, maybe you could share some of the things that did come true and what the experiment was and how it started. Sure. So when I left government in 1976, because I had been on the MIT discussion group and Secretary of Defense discussion group on innovation technology in the future, I, like most of the people in the geopolitical world, I had been the special assistant to the chief of naval operations. I thought we were going to have a nuclear war. And if you think back to those times, you can remember movies like uh, On the Beach or The Day After Tomorrow. Uh, which centered on uh, nuclear catastrophes. So I, I was very concerned about this. I thought there was a very real chance, and in fact, uh, that, that we would have a nuclear exchange. And in fact, although very few people know this, were it not for two Soviet officers who wouldn't push the button, we would have had a nuclear exchange. Um, that's a whole other story. But in any case, we got very close. And so I thought, using remote viewing, could I get information about the future and I could I find out if we had a nuclear catastrophe? And I began thinking about how far into the future you could go. And I realized if you went too far into the future, you wouldn't understand what they were saying. I mean, consider if this were the 18th century and someone was describing television, you know, you have a box or you have a screen that sits on a on a table or hangs on a wall and you can watch people dance and sing uh, all over the earth. I mean, how would you understand that? So I thought, well, I can't get too far out into the future because I won't understand what they're talking about. I mean, if you tried to describe the Internet, oh, yeah, you've got this gadget, you can wear it on your wrist, and it'll allow you to make contact with anybody anywhere in the world. How would you interpret that? So you couldn't. So I settled on 2050, and I started in 1978 to ask individuals individually, would they please describe the same day as the session that we were doing in the year 2050? So today is the 7th of December, and I would say to you, Yasmin, would you please go forward in time to the 7th of December 
2050 and tell me what you see, what, what you're experiencing. And about uh, between 1978 and 1991, I had about 4,000 people do that. And the results were um, very confusing, but extraordinary. One of the first things they said to me was, no, there hasn't been a nuclear exchange. And I said, well, then what's the Soviet Union doing? Because I, of course, assumed that the great conflict was at that time, 78, between the Soviet Union and the United States. And they said to me, well, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. I had no idea what to make of that. I mean, we saw at that time the, the two great superpowers. It was the great bipolar world in which the Soviet Union was this superpower and the United States was a superpower. And the idea that it just disappeared, I, you know, I thought, what, Martians came down and took it away? I mean, what happened? And they said, well, it just doesn't exist anymore. I couldn't make any sense out of that, but until 1991, when, of course, on Christmas Day, the Soviet Union ceased to exist. Another thing they told me was, uh, I asked them, well, is what about health care? And they said, well, there are a number of pandemics. And I said, well, tell me about one. And they said, well, the first one is going to be a blood disease that crosses over from Africa from primates. Uh, some sort of primate, you know, monkeys, and um, it's going to uh, cross over to humans and kill millions of people. Wow. And I went to a friend who was the deputy director of the National Institutes of Health at that time, and I said to him, do you know anything about a blood disease that's going to cross over from primates to humans in Africa and spread around the world and kill millions of people? And his answer was, Stephen, I don't know what you're smoking, but you should quit. <laughs> wow. And then, of course, in 1981, two years later, AIDS emerges. It crosses over from primates in Africa, and it eventually kills 36 million people. Another thing that they talked about, which I did not understand, I would ask them if they were in coastal cities, if they said they were in coastal cities, I would say, well, describe the city. And they would say, well, it's really in very dire straits because much of it is underwater. And I said, what do you mean it's underwater? And they said, well, the climate is different. The weather is different. And I didn't know what to make of that. And, I, and, and the sea has risen. And so typically, for instance, in Los Angeles, which is where I was at that point, I said, what do you mean? What's going on in Los Angeles? Well, there's a whole along the coast, Malibu and and uh, the other the little communities along the coast. Well, they're underwater. And I, I just didn't know what to do with that. And I went to a friend who was at the U.S. Weather Service and and said, do you know why the sea would rise a number of, of meters and submerge cities all around the world? And and he, he said, no, I don't know anything about that. And yet, in 1991, I read a paper in The American Scientist, which was the first thing that I ever read about climate change. And, of course, we now know that all of this was true and is happening. So, you know, the major 
things, every, everything that I have been able to check either has happened or is in the process of happening. And they were highly accurate. And they talked about things which, at the time that they said them, no one in the world knew about. Wow, Stephen. Uh, so many more questions just on that. I mean, um, by the way, I have to ask, uh, did, did anything about COVID came up? <laughs> did that come up in, in your experiment or anything related to that? Nothing specific to COVID. They just said, uh, you know, I, they said there's going to be a series of, of uh, epidemics, pandemics, and they're going to kill a lot of people. And well, let's just let me just give you a little sense of that. Um, the HIV, of course, 1976, it begins. Uh, we now know uh, kills 36 million people. The SARS epidemic in 2002, which killed about 8,000 people. The H1N1 influenza epidemic from 2009 to 2010, which killed 151,000 to 600,000. And of course, the coronavirus which has now killed a couple of million people. Um, I didn't ask. I didn't. That's the thing. When you talk about the future, you don't know what's going to happen. And so I just said, well, you know, what about health care? And they said, well, there's another problem. And that is that we don't in the United States, we don't actually have a health care system. We have an illness profit system. And it's perfectly clear from the COVID-19 pandemic and the way it has been handled that the illness profit system is completely inadequate to the task. But in any case, they said to me, you know, we're going to have this series of uh, pandemics. And the first one would be this blood disease, HIV. I didn't ask about others because I was so stunned by what they told me about that one. And when I checked, I couldn't find anybody that knew anything about it. So I thought, well, if there are multiple pandemics, as they said there would be, and in fact there have been, um, and in fact we're going to have more pandemics because we now know that climate change, which is causing the mutation of viruses changing their RNA and DNA and in, in ways that make them, um, uh, we have in, in ways in which People have no resistance, so there are going to be other mutated viruses coming along after COVID-19. We're just in the beginning, I think, of, of um, what is coming, and as these people described it, they also talked about uh, uh, the end of the carbon energy era. So all of the trends that they described, as I said, have either happened or are, are in the process of happening. Um, and I think 2050, uh, I'm now doing a study uh, with about 1,200 people on the year 2060 because I want to see what the difference is between the 2050 and the 2060 data and answer the question, which nobody's ever been able to answer. When people describe the future, what's called precognition. Are they describing a fixed future or are they describing the highest probability future at the moment you're asking the question? I don't know the answer to that yet, but that's one of the things I'm trying to find out. Wow. Wow. 
Yeah, that was actually going to be my question, like how much of the future is fixed, you know, if um, especially with like kind of these bigger events, you know, uh, how people react to these big events, you know, whether someone took office, especially with like something like the election, which is actually has been pretty close. Um, so, wow. OK. And so I want to talk about <laughs> the Schwartz report. And I, th I think like I have a visceral reaction to everything you said in like a, oh my goodness, um, moment because it really, you know, I, I've, I've been exposed to remote, remote viewing and psychic, uh, activities. And I think just having this type of knowledge and, um, it not being really, I think mainstream or, or I, I don't, doesn't seem like it has been mainstream. Um, you know, it was just, it's a bit frustrating because I think it's really important that we all kind of pay attention, um, to this, to this report, to this experiment. Um, but I want to talk about the Schwartz report because, um, I believe that you, you put out a report, is it every day or every week? Um, and is there anything that, you know, you'd like to share with our audience about the Schwartz report? And it seems like there's, there's parts of it with that are experimental. Um, so maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that. Well, Four times in my life, I've been involved with changing history and uh, the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, the transformation of the American military in the 70s, the development of the ecology movement and the consciousness movement, its first cousin, and during the 80s, the uh, work with what came to be known as citizen diplomacy to establish back channels between the then Soviet Union and the United States. So sometimes I've just been a sort of minor spear carrier, and other times I've been able to play a larger role. But in any case, I began, beginning in the late 80s, I began thinking about consciousness and how it is manifested at the societal level. Because if you think about it, culture is a manifestation of collective intention. That's why in India and in Italy, they cook eggplants in a very different way. Same vegetable, but the approach to it is quite different. And the reason is of culture. And as I say, culture is the, is the result of reiterated decisions made by individuals with collective intention. And I got to thinking about that and thinking about how that relates to the research I was doing and how, how it actually operates. Um, and it, I began to write papers about this, and then it culminated in 2016. I wrote a book called The Eight Laws of Change, which is about how individuals can become agents of change. I mean, for instance, to give you one of the most important examples, in the late 19th century, an eccentric, rather odd guy by the name of Henry David Thoreau sitting next to a little pond in Massachusetts, Walden Pond, and it is a pond, by the way, wrote a book called Civil Disobedience about how to create nonviolent change. And 
decades later, Mahatma Gandhi was a young English barrister in South Africa who dressed like an English barrister, was an aspiring English barrister, and he tried to get on a train buying a first-class ticket, and they wouldn't let him on because he was an Indian, and therefore he was a non-white, and this was during the apartheid period. And when he made a big fuss about it, they put him in jail. And while he was in jail, or right after he got out, I don't know which because he doesn't say, he came across this little book that Henry David Thoreau had written, Civil Disobedience. And he made the decision, as he said, that he was going to go back to India and that using the principles in civil disobedience, he was going to get independence for India. And I think it's quite notable. Very few people seem to talk about it. But India is one of the very few countries that got independence without a war. And in fact, right before he was assassinated in 1948, a reporter came up to interview him at his ashram and said to him, oh, Gandhiji, uh, my editor has sent me up with only one question to ask you. And he said, what's the question? And the reporter said, my editor wants to know how you forced the British to, give, to, to leave India. I mean, the British were one of the most powerful nations on earth, and, this, and India was their most precious colonial possession. How did you force them to leave? And Gandhi's answer is the key to this whole thing. He said, it wasn't what we did that mattered, although that did matter. And it wasn't what we said that mattered, although that did matter. It was the nature of our character, basically what I would call our, the beingness, that, that led the British to choose to leave India. And Martin Luther King in the United States, a young anonymous Baptist preacher, black Baptist preacher, he read a thing about Gandhi and how Gandhi had made India independent and about the civil disobedience written by Henry David Thoreau. And he, he got hold of that book and he also followed what Gandhi had said. And he said, this is how we're going to get the civil rights movement uh, to be effective in the United States. And that culminated in the Voting Rights Act in 64 and the Civil Rights Act 65. So basically what you've got is one eccentric individual living in a little shack next to a pond in the 19th century of the United States wrote something which affected two other men and that it affected the entire history of three nations. India, Great Britain, and the United States. And I read this, and that got me interested in the Quakers. And I began looking at the Quakers, who are a, a tiny, tiny little religious group. They're, so, they're only about 287,000 of them in the world. And in the United States right now, there's about 87,000. I mean, they're so small a group that most individuals in the United States have never met a Quaker, have no idea what they believe or what they do or anything about them. All they know is that there's an oatmeal associated with them. <laughs> and so I started reading uh, about the Quakers. Because if you look at American history, you see that every major socially transformative trend 
that fosters well-being begins with a little group of Quakers. Uh, penal uh, abolition, end of slavery, penal reform, public education, um, women's uh, suffrage, the environmental movement. All of those began with little groups of Quakers. And I thought, how is it that this tiny little group of people that most people have never even heard of, or if they may have heard of them but know nothing about them, how were they able to achieve these enormous social transformations? And I also began studying the abolitionists and uh, who ended slavery and the women's suffrage movement and the environmental movement. And, and I realized that there were eight I call them eight laws. I didn't invent them. I just discovered them. You can call them principles too, I guess. I'm not quite sure. I call them laws. That there were eight principles which, if they were followed, caused a transformation, allowed a small group of people to create a social transformation. And I even found out by doing the research how many people it took to do that, and also why the difference between violent change and nonviolent change. So if you if you look at history, what you discover is that violent change only succeeds about twenty five percent of the time, and it's always short lived. That is, it doesn't last very long. An example, for instance, National Socialism in Germany, the Nazis, they only really lasted between 10 and 15 years, depending on how you calculate it. Or you look at communism in in, uh, in Russia. I mean, it really only lasts from about 1905 to 1991, the lifetime of a single human being. Whereas if you look at, for instance, the United States and the construct of, of democracy in the Constitution, it's been around now for 240-some years. So why is it that violent change doesn't succeed very often, and when it does succeed, it doesn't last very long, whereas nonviolent change does succeed and lasts a long time? And the answer is violent change creates in its exclusive that is, there's my side and your side, and so it stimulates violence. Whereas nonviolent change is inclusive and therefore causes connections and shared intention. But more than that, as I got further into it, and as I say, as I described in the eight laws of change, um, any kind of social policy that supports and fosters well-being um, is always more effective, more efficient, more productive, easier to implement, nicer to live under, and much, much cheaper. I mean, politicians that tell you, oh, no, we can't do this thing that fosters well-being, it's too expensive— are either deliberately lying or are willfully ignorant. So in 1991, I started to do Schwartz Report, which covers, I don't do daily politics usually, and I'm not interested in political partisanship except anthropologically. I don't really 
I don't really care about in the United States, Democrats or Republicans. I can't think of the parties right now in India. But I'd, I, that's not what interests me. What my interest is, I think the function of the state should be to foster well-being from the individual to the family, the community, the state, the nation. So I, I thought I need to be, make available to people, and not only through that book, The Eight Laws of Change, and through lots of papers that I wrote, which are freely available by going to academia.edu. You can download my papers. There's a well over a hundred of them. I thought, because I think the role of the state and the role of society should be to create well-being, that I would start a daily web publication um, that talked about trends that either were inimical to um, well-being or were in support of well-being. So I do that every day. I've been doing it every day for whatever, however many years that is now, going on 20-something. Um, I do it seven days a week, and I cover trends that are affecting people's futures. And I'm interested in not the partisanship, but the quality of the policies. And what you see is that conservatives are always provide inferior governance. I mean, I, you know, I'm sorry, that's true. And you can prove it. I deal only in data. I'm not interested in philosophies or speculations or political bloviation or any of that. What I want to know is, can you give me objectively verifiable social outcome data that proves whether your approach is superior to other approaches? And the answer is, conservative approaches are always, always inferior. I was amazed. I thought, well, some of the time they must be better. No, they are always inferior because they are not focused on fostering well-being. And that's what I'm interested in. And it is a continuation of my consciousness research because what I was seeing in the laboratory, I saw actually extrapolated out to society as a whole. I mean, what Gandhi realized was if he could get enough peasants, even though they had no army, they had no money, they had no official position, they were sort of, you know, the, just the, the what, what do they call them, the, 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 the little people of the earth or something like that, um, that even though they didn't have any of the things you would associate with power, that nonetheless they could change the country if he could get enough of them going. And in fact, when, as I said earlier, we even know from research at Van Rensselaer Polytech that when 10% of any cohort, whether it's a school committee, a church group, or a nation, changes its consciousness, then the whole cohort has to accommodate for that change. And in the United States, I can give you some very clear examples. Uh, when I was a boy, uh, everybody smoked. And you went to somebody's house and on the coffee table in their living room, they had a ashtray and a pack of cigarettes and a cigarette lighter. You never see that anymore. And it's not that they passed a law that said you can't smoke. What happened was enough people came to realize that smoking was could kill you and they quit doing it. 
Or another one is um, you can look at the transformation of the word gay to LGBT. That happened about three and a half years ago. And people, who, it wasn't that anybody passed a law that said you have to stop saying gay and start saying LGBTQ. It's that people realized, uh, began to think about it. And it was not just a change of term, it was a change of concept about gender. Or you look at the Me Too movement, or you look at the Black Lives Matter movement. All of those are social nonviolent movements in which people change in consciousness. So the whole key to creating social change is to change consciousness. It's not about power, as most people think about it. It's about changing individuals' consciousness. And when a group, a cadre of individuals, or a cohort of individuals, enough of them change their consciousness about something, whatever, then the whole cohort has to accommodate for that. And that's true regardless of what kind of political system you've got. It's true whatever country you're in. It doesn't make any difference. The key to social transformation is creating collective individual intention that fosters well-being. What would you say would be like your advice to citizens who want to make that kind of impact? I mean, the way that I'm interpreting it is, and I think the reason why the world is the way it is, is because so many of us live in a zero-sum game reality. I heard this quote once that there's uh, no win-win in a win-lose world. So I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, what can we do? Uh, is it just making sure that our consciousness is at the highest that it could be and that it could impact others? Um, have you seen social activism as a way that garners change? I mean, obviously you, you brought, brought up Gandhi as an example, because I think, you know, as, as a citizen and, and as an individual, I, I've always been thinking about that question, you know, how can I make a greater impact on the collective consciousness? And, and sometimes it just feels so daunting, especially since so many of us don't live in a win-win interconnected reality and okay yeah. here's how you do it <laughs> it's ridiculously simple and in fact that's one of the nice things about this is that fostering well-being is really quite simple and here's how you can do it and i don't know how many people listen to your radio show i, I assume that you're broadcast mostly in india uh, Middle East, a Middle East. Uh, it's actually a global audience, but there's a lot of people um, in the Middle East because we're on the we're on a, a platform that's on in the Middle East. Yeah. Okay. Well, it doesn't make any difference. Here's how you do it. Every day you make hundreds of little choices. You don't even think of them as choices. You go to the store. You buy a particular toothpaste. You buy a particular cat food. You know, you don't buy it because you stop and have a long thought about what decision to make. You buy the toothpaste because that's what your mother told you to buy or your college roommate or your next door neighbor or whatever. You buy the pussycat food because that's the pussycat food your mother bought or that, uh, you know, somebody told you about at some time and you've just been doing it ever since. But in fact, every one of those... Every one of those choices that you make, those little bitty, I call them quotidian choices. Quotidian is a word that's not familiar to people, but it, what it means, and that's why I chose it, by the way, so it would stand out, 
It means ordinary, mundane, daily, pedestrian, little bitty choices that ordinary people make. Every day you make these choices. So if you want to change the world, this is how you do it. You become aware that you're making choices, for starters, and you do enough research to find out which of the options that are available to you is the one that is the most compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being. Now, none of the choices may be great choices. You may be in a situation where you don't have any great choice, but inevitably one of the choices is always slightly better than the others. So you are, first of all, aware that you're making choices. Second of all, that you do enough research about your choices to understand which of them is the most compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being, and that's the choice you make. And you tell 10 of your friends that you're doing this as a discipline, and you invite them to join you in doing it, and to tell 10 of their friends that they're doing it. And just like Henry David Thoreau changed the course of three countries, if the people that are listening to this show would make those kind of choices and tell their friends that that's what they were doing, let's say you started with 1,000 people or 10,000 people, it doesn't make any difference. It's like six degrees of separation. And then those that 10 tells another, that 10,000 tells 10 people that each of them know and so, you know, you just go up and pretty soon you're in the millions. And you can create social change exactly in that way. And then as you join together, you don't even have to know each other. You don't even have to know that other people are doing it. None of that matters. It's all being done at the level of consciousness. You change your consciousness through the choices that you make. Very simple. And then when you become aware and you join a group because you see other people doing the same thing you're doing, there are eight laws that you have to follow if you want to be successful. Okay. So I'll go through the eight laws. Yes, please. Law number one, the individuals individually and the group collectively must share a common intention. Now, if you've ever been part of a committee, a neighborhood committee, a school committee, whatever, you know that trying to get everybody on the same page about a shared intention is not easy to do, but that is a key. That's the first law. The individuals individually and the group collectively must share a common intention. Law number two, the individuals and the group may have goals, but they may not have cherished outcomes. That is, you can want something to happen, but you don't necessarily know how it's going to happen. I learned this from the abolitionists. I would read their correspondence or their diaries or contemporaneous accounts, and they would say over and over, slavery is a moral evil, and I want it to end. I don't quite know how it's going to happen, but however it happens, I am committed to making it happen. So law number, that's the difference between a, a goal and a cherished outcome. If you demand that it happen in a certain way, you minimize the probability of your success because you don't know all the factors that are going on. And so you want to be open to your goal, but not 
stuck with a cherished outcome. So not law number three, the individuals in the group must accept that their goal may not be reached within their lifetimes and be okay with this. And again, I learned this from the abolitionists and from the women's suffrage people. They would say, I don't know if this is going to happen. I don't know if slavery is going to end or women are going to get the vote in my lifetime, but I think that this is correct. I think this is the right thing to do, and I'm going to work for it, even if it doesn't happen in my lifetime. So law number four, the individuals in the group must accept that they may not get either credit or acknowledgement for what they've done and be authentically okay with that. You know, most people, most of us, we like to get credit. But again, you, if you read uh, the, the, the successful social transformation movements, you discover very quickly that you don't know who started it. Very few people know who started it. I mean, Greenpeace, the largest ecological movement in the country, in the world, was begun by a, a, two Quaker couples and some um, American expats and Canadian media guys up in Vancouver, Canada. And nobody knows their names, but everybody knows Greenpeace. So that's the difference about, that's why it's, you, you must be willing to do the work even though you don't get credit. Law number five, each individual in the group, regardless of gender, religion, race, or culture, must enjoy fundamental equality, even as the various roles in the hierarchy of the effort are respected. Now, we are high-order primates, and so we organize hierarchically. I said that to a Christian church group once, and they got very upset. <laughs> because, uh, what do you mean we're high-order primates? And I said, well, I'm sorry to tell you that, but, but most of your DNA can be found in primates. Uh, but in any case, the key to it is, that you you do organize we do organize hierarchically that is there's somebody that's the leader but you have to also recognize that in the group that all people are created equal that's what the founders of the united states understood all men are created equal now they didn't actually do it themselves they only counted blacks as three-fifths of whites and they were clearly male dominant but the basic concept that they had was the correct one. They just didn't live up to it. So you've got to have everybody's, you must enjoy equality and it must be recognized by everyone. Just because you're the leader does not make you a better person. Law number six, the individuals in the group must forswear violence in word, act, or thought. And I tell you that this, for me, this was the hard one. When I was involved in civil rights demonstrations in the United States back in the 50s and 60s, and they put sick dogs on, on people and women, and um, my initial reaction was not nonviolent. <laughs> and it took me a long time uh, and a lot of meditation. I had to start meditating in 1965. It took me a long time meditating to understand why nonviolence is so important even in thought. Law number seven, the individuals in the group and the group itself must make their private selves consistent with their public postures. Now, this is a, this is a biggie. 
I mean, everybody knows spiritual leaders who turn out to be, you know, pedophiles or drug users or whatever. You got to be your private self has got to be the same as your public self. You know, when Benjamin Franklin was sent at the age of 74 to France to get the French king to finance the American Revolution, which he did, the American Revolution was financed largely through Franklin's personal bank account. Um, Franklin went over and um, he got a letter from a woman who was a friend of his and she said, Dr. Franklin, I think your valet is a spy and he's reporting to either the French or the English. And Franklin wrote back to her and said, well, if in all other respects, my valet was a good valet as he is, since I never say anything in private that I would scruple to have made public, I don't care. <laughs> he was, in fact, a spy, by the way. He said, I just, I just don't care because what I say to private in private is what I say in public. So law number eight, the individuals in the group and the group collectively must always act from the beingness of life-affirming integrity. This was the principle that Gandhi got. This is why the salt riots worked. This is why cultures change. This is why um, gender equality, in spite of all kinds of resistance, is nonetheless, even in the most gender-biased cultures, beginning to change. So you, it's your beingness. It's what Gandhi said. It's not what we said. It's not what we did. It's the nature of our character. What I would call our, the beingness has to change so that you are authentically what you profess to be. And if you get those eight laws and you put them to work in any group that you organize or you join, you increase the probability of that group being successful by orders of, of magnitude. Incredible. Um, I will read the book, Eight Laws of Change, um, which is on Amazon, correct? You could find the book on Amazon? Yeah. Okay, great. Yep. Stefan, I wanted to have so many more questions, and I know that we're <laughs> coming on to time. Um, can we talk a little bit about the, because you obviously talked about intention and how powerful intention is. Um, I know that you have studied intention, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, but how does intention impact events, you know, and how, and maybe how much does it impact events? Well, it, it's, it has enormous impact. Intention is the is the consciousness that you have about something. And if your consciousness is always to be compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being, then the choices that you make, as I said, this quotidian choice, every day you make lots of choices. If you always make the one that is the pick the option that is the most compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being, then you become an agent of change. And so intention, ex expressed intention, is how social change happens. Now, either good or bad, by the way. I mean, in the United States, we got 73 million people who voted for Donald Trump. 
and who simply cannot seem to understand that he lost the election. And in another reflection, we have the worst record of COVID-19 deaths and illnesses of any country in the world. And the reason we do is because the idea of wearing masks and social distancing was politicized. And so the intention was to be resistant. And as a result, it's it's a form of mass murder that's going on in the United States as a result of a kind of willful ignorance and an unwillingness to to work to support and foster the well-being of the collective. So we have choices that we make. We have attitudes that we hold. And those expressed are how we create social change. And uh, Stefan, what about our intention when it relates to like non-local consciousness? You know, if if we're not able to actually physically do anything, you know, during our day that could impact uh, the collective, does our intention actually impact uh, non-locally? Yes. A friend of mine, Roger Nelson, has a project called the Global Consciousness Project. And Roger's got random number generators spread all over the earth. And they run 24-7, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And what he finds is that when there is a coalescing of intention at some event, particularly if it's with a heightened emotional state, for instance, the the death of Princess Diana, um, uh, a particular funeral or something like that. When things like that happen, his random number generators go non-random. That is just the consciousness, forget about the acts, just the consciousness of people reacting in collective intention to something Nelson Mandela's funeral, I said, as an example, causes these things to go non-random. So just what you're thinking makes a difference. Just what you're feeling makes a difference. That's why the key to all of it is that you, as an individual, must make the commitment to change your beingness. Nobody can do that but you. And if you do it, And if you foster well-being, then you are an agent of well-being-oriented social change, regardless of who you are, what gender you are, what religion you are, what race you are, what socioeconomic group you are. None of that makes any difference. What matters is that you get collective intention expressed to foster well-being. I mean, I know it sounds so ridiculously simple that it can't possibly work. And yet, when you look at the social outcome data, again, I'm a data person. When you look at the data, it becomes very, very clear that all major social transformations which foster well-being start like that. Super interesting. This reminds me a little bit of um, the the late David Hawkins um, and his perspective on just emanating a higher consciousness to also help others around you. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. I am. Well, that's, I mean, I'm, you know, as I said, 
I didn't invent these eight laws. I discovered them by looking at the patterns of the data. And I'm not the only person to do this. I mean, people have been doing it um, for millennia. It's just whether people are willing to listen. What happens is, is that your, your sense of trying to get advantage over others at, that in a way that doesn't foster well-being often becomes the dominant commitment. That's the problem the United States faces right now. We're a country in which it's every man for himself. That was not what the founders intended. What the founders intended, because everybody was an immigrant or the descendant of an immigrant, and that's still true, by the way, there were no humans in North America. Every single human in North America is either an immigrant or the descendant of an immigrant. And the founders recognized that, particularly Benjamin Franklin, who was the first consciousness researcher, most interesting of all the founders, in my opinion. Franklin set up all kinds of structures that would cause linkages between generations and between uh, religious or ethnic groups. That's why he started the junta, which he began, was an early business group. And the idea was to get the Italian bakers and the, the Irish candle makers and the Scottish whiskey makers all to begin to see that they had common interests and that if they would join together, they could achieve things. That's why he funded the first hospitals, the first insurance companies, the first fire companies. It was all designed to create interlinked, intergenerational, intergroup connections to express common intention that fostered well-being. Uh, Stefan, can you, you know, I want to dive a little bit more into that, but I actually want to talk about your work studying the most creative minds, because I thought uh, what you shared in that work um, and on your TED Talk was very important, um, especially as I think creativity is becoming, you know, more and more important as we automate a, a lot of the, I guess, like linear <laughs> minded jobs that can be, that can be automated. Um, so can you tell us maybe like briefly what it takes to be creative based on your research? Well, creativity, again, is you, if you do the research, <laughs> <laughs> that's always the problem, you know, is that you have people who are out espousing something, but they've never bothered to do the actual research. But if you do the research, what you discover is that Moments of genius, moments of spiritual epiphany, and ex experiences like remote viewing are all the same thing, modulated only by intention and context. That is, a scientist is trying to understand a principle, and so that's the kind of creative experience he has. Einstein sees... Um, the theory of relativity one day is he's in a canoe in the afternoon, having just recovered from an illness. Poincaré sees the, the mathematics that make him historically famous as he's walking across the road. Nikola Tesla sees the as a vision the electric motor and goes back and builds it. I mean, I can just go on and on and on. Brahms says, I'm in an altered state of consciousness. And in that altered state, I can, I hear the music, the chords, the notes, and I write it down. 
basically what you discover is that whether it's a spiritual epiphany, whether it's a moment of genius, or whether it's a remote viewing where you're asked to describe the teacup hidden in a closet across the earth, it's all the same thing. It's only the only difference is intention and context. So the source of creativity is non-local consciousness. And non-local consciousness is that aspect of consciousness which is not physiologically based. Materialism says that all consciousness is physiologically based. Therefore, dead meat, no consciousness. But the actual research says consciousness exists prior to your incarnation, during your incarnation, and continues after the physical death, after physical death. There is a continuity of consciousness. And that what comes across from one life to the other is information. That we are creating information architectures. We have an eternal self, what the what religions call the soul, and um, and that by the choices that you make and the attitudes that you hold, you create an informational architecture which exists outside of space and time. And if you are committed to creating well-being and fostering it amongst all beings at all levels, then you are in harmony with the matrix. And if you're doing something else, then you're not. And that's how what India calls karma is created. I mean, if you look at, um, for instance, the sutras of Patanjali, a Hindu who nonetheless wrote in a kind of Buddhist-Hindu hybrid script, uh, wrote the Yoga Sutras. What he's talking about is that you use consciousness to create change. And that's why, for instance, with remote viewing, the key to it is the ability to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness. And the best way to do that is to develop the daily practice of meditation. That's why meditation is taught in martial art dojos in Japan, in Tibetan Buddhist monasteries, Hindu monasteries, or uh, ashrams, or Catholic seminaries. All of it is about attaining and sustaining intention-focused awareness. And in fact, that's how all religions begin. You think about it, Buddha is this young prince and he goes to an ashram and he learns how to meditate and he awakens and begins his teaching. Jesus is baptized at the age of 30 by John. He goes into the desert to meditate and he awakens. Muhammad goes to the sacred cave of Hira and he has a non-local consciousness experience and begins to meditate. So every one of these religions began because the founder was an individual who could attain and sustain intention-focused awareness, because that's where creativity and insight comes from. And uh, Stefan, can you tell us a little bit more about um, maybe some of the things that have inspired you on this journey? And I know that... Um, we're kind of a little bit over time, but I find this so, this conversation is so interesting. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Um, well, I hope that we can have you on the show again, because I feel like I, I have so many other questions, but um, maybe we can, we can just uh, as a kind of last two questions. Um, one is, 
What do you want to tell our audience about um, well-being and consciousness? What's sort of your main takeaway? If you could tell, if these, if this is like your last statement that you could tell people, <laughs> what would it be? We are at the edge of a civilization-threatening, catastrophic change, climate change, and everything that that's going to cause. You, as an individual, have the possibility of becoming an agent of change to prepare us to effectively deal with that existential crisis. And you can do so by adopting the quotidian choice protocol that I described and getting friends to join you in that. Because if you don't, the chances are you, your family, and everyone you know, and all their children and all their grandchildren will lead lives which are substantially degraded in all manner of ways. So this is the moment. And if not now, then when? And if not you, then who? Mm, amazing. Stefan, it's been such a pleasure. Um, for those who want to follow your work, are there any resources or uh, websites that you can point, point folks to in order to learn more about you? I'll also include your links in the show notes, uh, but maybe you could tell them how, how they can find your work, um, how they can fi follow uh, Schwartz Report, and anything else. Well, if you want to find out about me, you can go to www.stephanaschwartz.com, my personal website, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z. Stefan is S-T-E-P-H-A-N, little initial A. You can find that will take you to everything. But you can also go to uh, schwartzreport.net to get my daily web publication. And it tells you about trends that are affecting the future. Or you can go to academia.edu, where you can get all of my papers freely downloaded. Or you can go to YouTube and search on my name, and there are hundreds of video interviews. Or you can go to Amazon and search on my name, and you'll get all my books, both the fact books and the fiction books. I make everything as easily accessible as I can, and I make it as freely available as I can, and I encourage you to become an agent of social change. Stefan, thank you so much for being here. Um, you're like the uh, Henry Thoreau of our generation and lifetime, so I know that you're causing ripples of change uh, with your work, so thank you so, so much for your, for your time. Um, really happy to have you here. Happy to do it. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about how to cultivate creativity, remote viewing, and non-local consciousness, as well as the power of intention. You can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one -on -one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Thanks again.